In 2006, an estimated 17,602 people died in alcohol-related car crashes here in the U.S. That's an average of one every 30 minutes. That means by the time this show is over, someone might die in a drunk driving accident. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, drinking and driving. With us to discuss the issues are drunk driving defense attorney Michael DeSharo. Michael has a practice in Manhattan. Michael, welcome to Cityscape. Good morning. Also with us is victim's attorney Alvin Broom. He's a senior partner at Ginsburg and Broom in Manhattan. Alvin, welcome. Good morning and nice to be here. On the phone with us is New Jersey State Police Sergeant Stephen Jones. Sergeant, good morning. Good morning to all of you. Effie Cotto also joins us this morning. Effie is a victim advocate with Mothers Against Drunk Driving in Connecticut. Effie, hello. Good morning. And with us this morning on Cityscape is Robin Cullen. She's a victim impact panel coordinator with MAD Connecticut. Good morning to you, Robin. Good morning, and thank you for inviting us here today to discuss this most important issue. Sergeant Jones, I want to start with you. How serious a problem is drunk driving from your perspective? It's probably one of the most serious problems we have out there on the road because it obviously slows a person's reaction time down. And any time you do that, you're going to run into problems. You're going to uh, not be able to react to changing road conditions ahead of you. And it's probably uh, just as much of a problem these days as distracted driving, which causes most of our accidents out there. What do you look for while on the roads? How can you tell if someone might be drunk? You can't tell necessarily uh, by their behaviors whether the person is drunk or not until you actually pull them over and do some field sobriety tests. Uh, Often the type of behaviors that a drunk driver would exhibit are the same as maybe those of an aggressive driver or those of a distracted driver or even a drowsy driver. Now, when you make that initial stop, you say you do these field sobriety tests. Why don't you walk us through some of the things that you do out there on the road? Well, of course, one of the initial indicators would be uh, in speaking to the person, whether they have bloodshot eyes, whether their speech is slurred, whether you detect the odor of an alcoholic beverage on their breath. Uh, If any of those um, symptoms are there and evident, you might ask the person to step from the car to perform more significant tests out behind the car in a safe location. Those tests may include some of the typical things that you see on the uh, television, such as hand-eye coordination tests using uh, counting fingers, uh, maybe counting backwards, uh, balance tests, uh, standing on one foot or standing in a straight line, walking a line, all those kind of things that we're used to seeing on shows like Cops. Do drivers have to submit to a breathalyzer test or, I guess in New Jersey, depending on where you live, which county you're pulled over in, I should say, an ALCA test? Uh, yes, they do uh, have to submit to those tests. If they refuse, they're pretty much automatically guilty of refusal, which carries the same penalties as being convicted of drunk driving. Michael, you are a defense attorney. You represent people accused of drunk driving. What should you do when you're pulled over by a police officer? Well, first thing, in New York, unlike uh, New Jersey, it is not a, cr- a separate crime to refuse a breathalyzer. So once the officer pulls you over and asks you to take a alcohol sensor on the street, which is not admissible in court in New York, uh, you can say no. And then the state has then, then they take you back to the precinct and ask you to take an official breathalyzer with the machines that we have in New York City. And you can also say no there. Uh, the state then has to prove that you are driving under the influence without the benefit of a reading from this much heralded machine, which is much harder. The cases I have where people do not blow in the machine um, are, are, frankly, a lot easier to defend. When you get a reading from the machines, and these machines 
are highly faulty. They simply, and there is no connection between the number that comes out in that machine and the ability of the person to actually operate a vehicle. And I say that after reviewing hundreds of videotapes and hundreds of cases where someone might blow, we hear the term, two times over the legal limit, and they are dead sober. Sergeant, let me have you respond to that. Do you think that these machines are reliable? I think the uh, recent court cases in New Jersey have uh, proven their reliability, and we're uh, pretty much moving ahead now with all those cases that were kind of in semi-limbo there. But regarding a, a person's um, acting dead sober, uh, I think that there's many people, professionals, if you will, I mean, whatever you'd like to call them, who are used to consuming alcohol and uh, can put on a the facade of normality uh, when they're intoxicated. Those people often have a, uh, a reaction time that is still dreadfully slow compared to someone who is not intoxicated. That they may even be able to walk is not necessarily an indication of how well they're going to be able to drive in a critical instance. Michael, what can you tell us about acting sober? If anybody's ever been drunk, uh, it's very difficult to act sober when you've consumed two, three, four, five, six beers. So it's sort of saying that despite what you appear to be on tape, you're still guilty because you're acting sober. Anybody who's known anybody who drinks knows that's extremely hard to do. Um, sometimes the, the, um, they'll make the argument that experienced drinkers have a high tolerance. Well, if they have a high tolerance, that means the alcohol doesn't affect them. And, and the tests that the sergeant speaks about, the roadside tests when doing the step tests and the balance tests, the only judge of those tests is the police officer. So in court, it's the officer's word against the alleged offender's word. Exactly. In New York, they fill out a statement that says balance, good, speech, fair. The only judge is the police officer. And on, lastly, on the issue of slurred speech, most of the people that get pulled over, it's the first time the police officer is having any contact with them, so they don't know what their regular speech pattern is. Some people have or have speech impediments, and the officer might assume that's because he's been drinking. With the New Jersey State Police, if I can respond to that, we all have videotapes in our, in our patrol vehicles. And so there is more than just the judgment of one uh, or two troopers out on the roadway. There's the ability of uh, counsel uh, and a judge to review those tapes and to determine whether the, the trooper's judgment was sound. Michael, do you want to add to that? It, it definitely adds uh, another level of scrutiny. The, prob the biggest problem in New Jersey is you don't get a jury trial in New Jersey for a joint driving case. So <laughs> it is, my friends who practice in New Jersey, it is almost impossible to beat a drunk driving case in New Jersey because you simply don't have the benefit of having a jury review what the police have done. It's a judge who's familiar with the local police, who's often paid by the same people that are uh, that pay the police and it's just not it's just not possible in New York you have a jury trial where six people uh, will judge you and will judge the actions of the police let me get an understanding of the difference between driving while intoxicated driving while under the influence and driving while ability impaired are there big differences here in New York the difference between driving while impaired and driving while intoxicated is the difference between a non-criminal sanction and a criminal misdemeanor, so which you could spend up to a year in jail. So there's a huge difference. Often prosecutors will say to you, um, I don't have enough evidence to prove your guy is guilty of drunk driving, of being intoxicated, but I believe he's impaired, so I will offer you the, it's called the impaired. Um, and, it, you know, it's up to you whether you take it or not. So there's a, there's a huge difference in New York about 
what you're going to plead to because a criminal conviction in New York State will stay with you for the rest of your life. Are minors treated differently than adults in drunk driving cases? In New York State, they're treated a little more harshly because there's a zero tolerance uh, for them drinking alcohol. As you know, you have to be 21. So it's a little... Um, to treat them more harshly under, under the law, but oftentimes you can get a better break uh, with the prosecutors because he's so young, and they can be uh, adjudicated a youthful offender uh, if they're 19 years old or under, so their record is completely clean. How do you deal with minors in New Jersey, Sergeant? It sounds similar to New York, where uh, there is zero tolerance for any alcohol. Therefore, if a juvenile is found to have any in their system, they are... Uh, by default, guilty, and the penalties are roughly the same. They they get a uh, license suspension, which is automatic, and then as you uh, go up in the number of guilty findings, uh, the penalties, of course, go up, and they're much more severe as you get to your second and then your third. Police often set up checkpoints and roadblocks, we know, to prevent drunk driving, especially during holidays like New Year's and the 4th of July. Michael, I'm curious to see if you think those are fair. The most unfair thing I've heard is that there was one in New York where MAD was actually sponsoring it. Now, if you're the police officer on the scene and you have a member of MAD next to you while you're trying to decide if somebody's a drunk driver or not, there's going to be a strong incentive there to arrest people because the organization, and they're very powerful, they're very political, uh, they do a very good job on a very serious issue. So that's, that, was, that was the one thing that struck me as being patently unfair where you have an advocacy group sitting next to the police department in New York City. But the constitutionality of these roadblocks has been held up, correct, Sergeant? Roadblocks are used occasionally in New Jersey. Um, you're going to have to talk to somebody from the AG's office if you want constitutionality issues argued. But New Jersey State Police uh, occasionally uh, and rarely actually do roadblocks. Uh, the majority of our enforcement is going to be uh, roving patrols out on the roadway watching uh, driving behavior. Robin, do you get involved with checkpoints in Connecticut, MAD Connecticut? Yes, as a matter of fact, we do. We've been out quite often lately, and we're invited by the um, officers to come out and represent. And, you know, it's it's to remind people of why we don't want people out impaired on the roads, to have, um, you know, we have our volunteers, our victims, people who have been affected, permanently affected by the choice someone makes to drink and drive. And to have um, most of the time when people are passing through a checkpoint, we often get thanked for being out there and for raising the awareness and educating more than we get a negative reaction from the people driving through the checkpoint. Sergeant, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know you have other things to do this morning. But I wanted to ask you, is there a typical drunk driver in New Jersey? Who are you generally pulling over? <laughs> Not at all. There is no typical drunk driver. Uh, they run from all walks of life, all ages, um, of course, both sexes, uh, all races, it really doesn't matter. There is no typical drunk driver. Drunk driving, of course, we're talking about alcohol for the most part, but intoxicated driving also involves drugs, and, and that uh, just opens up a whole other avenues there, and uh, that would just add to my feeling that there's, there's no typical person there. Okay, New Jersey State Police Sergeant Stephen Jones, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Michael, can I have you talk about who generally you represent? Everyone. I have construction workers, CEOs, chefs. He's right. It is the one crime where everyone in this room and everybody in this building could conceivably be accused of. Not many people in this building are going to be accused of dealing drugs uh, or assaulting someone, but DWI is, it, it just runs the gamut. And of course, your life is forever changed once you're convicted of drunk driving. Well, if you're convicted of a criminal record in New York State, it's forever.
And of course, your life is also forever changed when you're a victim of drunk driving. And let me bring in now victim's attorney Alvin Broom. What do you see in your practice? Well, we see the end result of poor behavior, which um, involves someone having an extra drink at a party or at a wedding or at a social affair, or more than one, and then we see a catastrophic result from what starts out as a a minor problem becomes uh, catastrophic. We see wrecked lives, uh, dead victims, and mourning families, and we view this as a very serious problem because I think the general public doesn't realize that if you drink and you drive, as we've heard many times, you're really acting in a very, very dangerous manner to everybody else on the road and to pedestrians. And uh, we see the the victims and the catastrophes repeatedly, uh, and it's it's something that we really have to get a handle on and try to stop as much as we can. The fact that you're in business, I'm sure, says a lot about how frequent these cases actually come down. We have had a number of victims of drunk driving, Uh, We've even had, frankly, a New York uh, City train operator who, after a catastrophic train accident, took a breath analyzer test, which the transit authority required, and it turned out he had been drinking on a job. So you don't only see it in car accidents, but you mostly see it in car accidents. And I think the problem is is, uh, that when you drink, you are not realizing that you're acting erratically. You're not realizing that you're speeding you're not realizing that you can't control this vehicle, and the vehicle is really sort of a bullet on the road. Uh, you might remember from high school or college uh, physics or science that if you take an object that has a certain weight or a certain mass, its force is the product of its uh, speed uh, times the mass. So if you take a car that weighs 3,000 pounds and you're going at uh, 5 miles an hour, that's one thing, but if you take a car that weighs... 3,000 pounds and you're going at 50 miles an hour and you're involved in an accident, uh, it's a catastrophe. Let's bring in our defense attorney here, Michael DeSharo. What do your clients tell you? Do they tell you, oh, I didn't think that I was drunk. I didn't think that I had one too many. First, I want to say what Alan just said. There is no other side to the tragedies that occur every day. There is is wholesale, sometimes slaughter going on on the highways by people who, who drink and simply cannot control the vehicle. There is no other side to that. Uh, the issues that I face is these machines, these breathalyzer machines, that most of them in New York City are completely unreliable. So my clients will come in and say, I was dead sober. I was driving. They stopped me because they said I ran a stop sign. I wasn't given a ticket. And then I blew in the breathalyzer machine, and it was .19, which is almost two times uh, over over two times legal limit. So then I, we have to go to court and convince a jury that you know these machines – simply don't work. And it's it's very difficult to do because it's one of the only areas of criminal law where we've sort of given up the judgment of people to a machine. A lot of people would say when someone drives drunk, even with a little bit of alcohol in their system, that they throw away their rights. What do you say to that? It's not what the Constitution says. Effie Cotto is a victim advocate with Mothers Against Drunk Driving in Connecticut. Effie, I'm sure you hear many, many, many stories. Yes, I work with um, the 
the families, the victim families, uh, very closely. We uh, offer a support group that we have through our organization. Also, I'm in court on a daily basis with victim families. Um, these are people who have lost their loved ones or have been seriously injured by a drunk driver. It's a tragedy, and when a life is lost suddenly, you know, due to somebody else's recklessness, um, it's something that's very hard to uh, to deal with. So I basically help them through um, by giving emotional support and also helping them through what's a very difficult process as far as understanding the criminal justice system. There's a lot of aggravation that comes up um, when dealing with, you know, the whole process as, as far as an offer that comes up, the date of the sentencing, that type of thing. Alvin, how hard is it for victims and their families to go through the trial? Well, we see the civil end, and there are a couple of problems there. Uh, if a driver is drunk, and that's clear, then it's not too difficult to win the case. And the damages are often rather clear because you have a catastrophic accident involving some very, very serious or crippling injuries or often a death. But what we see is a greater tragedy, not only uh, have those families or victims been seriously injured or unfortunately sometimes lost a loved one, but the compensation issue uh, is one where we find absolute inadequate compensation on the part of the insurance carried by those uh, drivers who in fact are drunk. In New York State, the minimum mandatory required insurance coverage for a driver other than a taxi cab in New York City, is $25,000 for one person injured or 50 for multiple people injured in a car accident with $50,000 for a death. Now, that has been the state of the law in New York since, I believe, 1973 when it was increased from $10,000 to 25 and from 20 to 50. Nothing has changed uh, in terms of the amount of required insurance for all of those years, despite everything else in the world increasing in value, increasing in price, and going through the roof because of inflation. So we have had cases where a 35-year-old man with a wife and two children is killed in an automobile accident, and the insurance company adjuster calls us up after we start the case and says, gentlemen, I have a drunk driver here. We're very sorry for your victim's family. Uh, they lost their husband or their wife. And uh, we have a $50,000 policy. Would you like that? And uh, my, my latest answer is uh, one they don't like. I actually said to an injuster about two weeks ago, uh, no, we don't want the money. We're going to take a trial. We're going to get a verdict. And uh, he says, well, why do you want to do that? We'll just have the defendant go into bankruptcy, and he won't have to pay any money anyway. I said, well, if you don't want me to do that, I want a consent decree from the chief operating officer of your insurance company that you're not going to sell 2550 policies in the state of New York. <laughs> His response to me was, you're crazy. My answer was, you're right, but I'm going to get this law changed, even if we do it very slowly, because there's something wrong with victims of these kinds of catastrophic accidents getting so little compensation where the wrong is so great. Let me ask you, Robin, from Mad Connecticut. Obviously, it takes an emotional toll on the victim. I'm sure, though, as we hear from Alvin, it also takes a financial toll. Across the board, 
the um, the victim just suffers. And it's not something that just, you know, that they just deal with for a short amount of time. It's a permanent life-changing effect, um, effect and it's it's forever. Lives are changed forever. And just I just want to clarify something. We're, we're talking about, I'm hearing the word accident, and, you know, we firmly believe that these um, incidents should be referred to as crashes, not accidents, because someone chooses to um, put the keys in the ignition after drinking. And these um, these crashes are 100% preventable if people did not choose to put the keys in the ignition after drinking, and that any amount of alcohol can impair someone's judgment. I guess that's a tough word in either case, accident, Michael, because I guess it's an accident until proven otherwise by a court of law. To make uh, someone what we refer to as strictly liable for everything that happens that that happens on the road is is very difficult. A lot of times, the person who's been drinking is not the one that actually causes the accident. And right at the beginning of the show, you stated that um, seventeen thousand people are going to die in alcohol related. In New York, those statistics also include people who are drunk who walk off the curb and get hit by a car. So. It's an all-encompassing definition, but people automatically think it's you know it's people, drunk drivers behind the wheel running people over, which is, is not the case. Robin, can I ask you to share your personal experiences with drunk driving? Because you have quite the story. Yes. Um, about almost 12 years ago, I, um, after attending a wedding in, on an evening, a Saturday evening, I chose to drive after drinking. And the very short story... As a result of that choice I made on the way home um, to bring my girlfriend home after the wedding, I made a judgment error and um, tried to correct my error, but ended up flipping my truck, and she was she died instantly in the crash. And um, after going through the court system, and you know, the the end result was that I was sentenced to eight years, suspended after three and a half, and I served three years in maximum security, um, the women's prison in Connecticut. And, you know, I I am 100% responsible for what happened that evening. If I did not choose to put the keys in the ignition after drinking, then, you know, she would still be here. And, you know, we have a number, 17,602 people died in crashes. And, you know, we can say that maybe some of those people were, um, you know, were not behind the wheel driving drunk. But when we have a number like 17,602 people being killed in these crashes, there there are a good amount of people out there putting the keys in the ignition after drinking. And the average person drives 87 times drunk before actually getting caught for their first DUI. That's some statistics that just came back related to the ignition interlock system. So, you know, it's a prevalent problem. And the real deal is, you know, our organization, we're not out there trying to stop people from having fun or, you know, try to get the person that's actually just having one drink off the road. We're talking about the um, the folks that are continuously offending time and time again and, you know, the, the innocent people that are affected on the road. And, you know, I have to say that I even think that that 87 time, times drunk number is a little bit low. Um, just, you know, with my experience. And the whole thing is that when someone like myself or other people that I know that have had similar situations, we don't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to go out tonight and, you know, kill somebody. It doesn't happen like that. And we have this social, um, you know, just this 
social, it's an environment. We need to change the environment, the way that we think about what's happening out there. And right now we are involved in a campaign over the next 10 years, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, to actually eliminate drunk driving, to raise awareness, educate, and stop this crime from happening. And it is the most committed crime, and it's 100% preventable. That's the real deal, that it doesn't have to happen. These are lives that don't have to be lost, people that don't have to die. You mentioned the ignition interlocks. Now, these are devices that when installed in a car, a driver has to blow into them and the engine will not start if it detects alcohol on the driver's breath. Robin, your group wants ignition interlocks installed in the cars of all offenders, regardless of whether it's just a first offense, right? Yes, that's what we're, um, we're involved with legislation now to try to get that to change. Do any states already have that on the books? Yes, there are several states. and I, New Mexico. I'm not sure all the states, but I know New Mexico was, I believe, the first state to um, have such a penalty. And over time, and I'm not sure of the period of time, but their fatality rate dropped 40 percent after installing on first-time offenders. Alvin, what do you think of that? I think it's a fantastic idea where you have an offender who's been convicted or who has pled guilty to uh, driving while intoxicated, driving while drunk. Whether he or she has hurt anyone or not yet is not the point. This is a wonderful device. It would save lives. It would save people. It isn't that expensive, and I think the legislature should pass that immediately. Michael, is it fair to have a first-time offender have one of these devices installed in their vehicle? They're not used in New York City, and I don't think they could be used in New York City because of the sheer volume of cases that we have here. I just think the cost would be exorbitant. I also don't – I've never actually seen one because New York City, I just we just don't see them. Uh, does it prevent someone – who is sober from blowing into the machine that allows the drunk to drive. I can address that. Um, you know, the way I do the victim impact panel, and we have discussion about this all the time, and people that have, have been convicted are willing to have this device put into their car. And one of the things that I always say is, if I'm in the car with somebody who's been drinking and I'm sober, I'm not going to blow in that thing so they can drive. So we don't even think that's an issue. There was a time where we didn't have seatbelts or airbags, and those are to save lives. If this is something that's going to save lives, especially innocent folks on the road, then absolutely, across the board. Alvin? I would agree with that completely, and if you look at it from a cost-effective point of view, you say, well, whoever can afford a, a car, which costs thousands of dollars, or whoever can lease a car, which costs hundreds of dollars every month, uh, if convicted, could certainly afford the minor cost of... Uh, of putting in such a device to prevent a fatal accident or a crippling one. Overall, though, Robin, do you think enough is being done to educate young people about the dangers? I mean, I know that we're in the schools all the time, especially around this time of year, prom, graduation, and we know that between five and 6,000 kids at this time of year, high school age, don't make it to graduation. And, you know, educating, raising awareness, teaching them to make good choices, to stay where they are if they've been drinking. We know that kids are probably going to drink, but we need to educate on what to do if they choose to make that poor decision. Call somebody, call a friend, make a pact with your parents. Choose a designated driver at the beginning of the night, not at the end, the one who's had the least amount to drink. Michael, we talked about the emotional and the financial toll that drunk driving has on the victim and the victim's families. What about the offender, the person who is convicted of drunk driving? In New York City, the average drunk driver will probably pay out before, if they don't go to trial, between six to $10,000 out of their own pockets and attorney's costs and, and fines and things of that nature. If they choose to go to trial, that fee can be much higher. 
Also, a lot of people simply can't afford to go to trial and are forced to plead guilty um, because they don't have the financial wherewithal to defend themselves. With the pushing of organizations like MAD, really run roughshod over people's rights. Luckily, New Jer- in New York, we have juries. But those people who do plead guilty or are convicted, how much did they lose? They lose six months loss of license uh, or 90 days loss, loss of license, depending on uh, uh, what they plead guilty to. They have to do a drunk driving program in New York State. Also, New York City uh, takes cars from people who are arrested for DWI. And I've had cases where handicapped children, cars have been taken from families of handicapped children. Where they can't get to the doctors. They can't get to other essential services. So the impact uh, on the accused is, is, is very large. Robin, as someone who did drive drunk with serious consequences, do you have any sympathy for those people who do it without realizing that there can be such deadly consequences? I don't know um, sympathy. I know that the one thing that you know we haven't put out on the table is that there there is the the power of alcohol and the disease of addiction. If you're going to drink, why take the risk of driving? You know, that's where I'm at now. Let's be responsible, teach responsibility, and be good role models for the, you know, the folks that are younger than us and change the environment, change the way that we act out there in the world. And then we solve the problem. It is a problem that has a solution. A very good point, a very strong message to end the program on. Robin Cullen, you are a Victim Impact Panel Coordinator with MAD Connecticut. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. also want to thank Effie Cotto. Effie is a Victim Advocate with MAD Connecticut. Effie, thank you. Thank you for having me. want to thank drunk driving defense attorney Michael DeSharo. Michael has a practice in Manhattan. Michael, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. And victims attorney Alvin Broom. He is a senior partner at Ginsburg and Broom, also in Manhattan. Alvin, thank you. Thank you, and a pleasure to be here. Also want to thank New Jersey State Police Sergeant Stephen Jones, who joined us earlier on Cityscape. And thank you to our producer, Rashida Winfield. I'm George Bodarki. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. Have a great weekend. 